from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 1 through 9. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found, Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We are continuing in the season of Lent, and this is now the third week of, of Lent. If you have ever celebrated Advent, you may remember that in the third week of Advent, there is a pink candle or a rose-colored candle. And in both seasons, we use the same color, the same paraments. Uh, that color is purple, which denotes not only royalty, but also, in a morose sense, bruising. It highlights the bruising which will take place 
for the Messiah at the end of his road of suffering, that he will not only be scourged, but that he will be offered up on the cross. And on that cross, out from his side will pour forth blood and water. That is all wrapped up in this picture of purple, this, this garment of purple. It's, it's a symbol of royalty, but it's also a reminder that Christ's royalty came through his cross. That's why the pyramid has on it a crown and a cross, because Christ did not acquire a crown outside of a cross. Likewise, the cross was not to a futile purpose, but it had a deep and meaningful lasting purpose, the purchase of his entire church, the entire community of the redeemed, and for his revelation as the, throne, as the Son of God upon the throne of God. So as we move through the season of Lent, we are constantly reminded in that season of our need for ongoing repentance. Lent is not a season of introspection unto depression. Lent, rather, is a season of a joyful embracing, once again, of the truths of the Christian faith, which we held dear when we first came to Christ. Throughout this season of Lent, therefore, we're reminded for a need for ongoing repentance that comes to the sinner and saint alike. That is, the appeal, the command to repentance is both given to those who are far from God and those who are near God, in a sense. So vital is this understanding of the importance of repentance to the Christian faith that when Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis onto the door of Wittenberg Chapel, he wrote as follows, the first thesis which Luther sought to defend was when our Lord, quote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. Many of us, however, feel that we have repented, we've drawn near to God, we've become Christians, and therefore we're not in need of a continual repentance. Yet we must remember Isaiah's words that we just heard read to us were written to God's people. Isaiah calls to God's people for them to come and drink of God. Therefore, as God's people, we must recognize that we routinely forget the chief aspect of what we sang this morning, God alone satisfies our true and deepest hungers and thirsts. And because we forget this, we look towards other things to satisfy our appetite. We, as Christians, regularly look to entertainment to fulfill our deepest longing and desire. Have you ever heard of or done a Netflix binge? How is it that the human soul can be captivated for six hours? I know, I've done it. We are regularly enticed by food. If you've never been to a place like the Cheesecake Factory, I encourage you to go. It's a delight. And yet, it is so easy for our hearts to latch onto a legitimate pleasure and to seek to elevate it to the place that God alone can fulfill. Likewise, in our culture, we love sex. Even within committed godly marriages, we exalt sex to a position that it could never fulfill to satisfy the deepest fulfillment of the need for human compassion and human relationship. In all these things, entertainment, food, sex, the desire for power, the desire for friendship, all of them are lesser desires, and they cannot be fulfilled by human relationship alone. 
We constantly go to news and social media to devour the latest information, hoping to make sure we're on the cusp of being in and in the know, the in-group instead of the out-group. We are moving often from self-improvement trend to self-improvement trend. Test yourself in this. Do you know how to finish the phrase, does this bring me joy? Some of you know what I'm talking about. There, there are these trends that ebb and flow through culture that seek to capture our heart, and they appeal to a sense of a desire to transcend the mundane realities of life. If I could only get organized, then my life will be fulfilled. If I could only lose that weight, then my life will be fulfilled, and I'll improve, and I'll, I'll be liked by others, and, and my life will go well. And yet, in the midst of all this search, a search that even Christians go on, we are silently denying the reality of the transcendent God who made us. What do I mean by the transcendent God? Christianity is not just a a religion or a faith in which God has become incarnate, that is, the Son of God stepped down, took on human flesh, which we celebrate each year in Christmas and throughout the church calendar. But our God is also transcendent. He is not only incarnated and imminent and with us, He transcends our our greatest longings. Everything that we hope could be possible in this life, Christ goes beyond fulfilling those things. That is to say that God is so far above His creation that He alone can fulfill the desire that He placed in us for Him. Therefore, we must come to recognize over and over again that the only thing, really the only one, that can quench our true thirst is God alone. And that is exactly what Isaiah and the Christ are doing in these passages. First, Isaiah is giving a call to God's people. Really, this call is not Isaiah's call, but it is God's call coming through Isaiah And after giving this call, Isaiah then assures God's people of the forgiveness that the Lord has for those who return to him. One of the most precious verses in all of the Old Testament here is God is going to abundantly pardon. He's going to fully pardon such that he no longer remembers the prior transgressions. Finally, I want to look at how Christ himself answers what Isaiah prophesied of so long ago, that he himself is the living water. Through the mouth of Isaiah, Yahweh is calling to his people to come and to feast with him. He is speaking to his people and he's inviting them to come. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. What a perplexing thing to do, to buy without money. Why does God say this to his people? He says, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Everyone who comes to this gracious meal brings nothing in their hand to attend that meal. There's no price for admission. And yet, in this meal, they find everything that they want. Everything that they would hope to use money to buy... They are unable to buy, and yet they find nonetheless. So amazing is God's mercy, so humble His love is that in this call, He is not humiliating those who have no money. They do not steal from this meal. It is not charity. It is not a handout. He says, buy without money and without price. 
I think there's something deeply significant about this fact that God calls His people, recognizes their poverty, and yet says to come to this table. Don't come like a thief who has to steal the bread and run from the table. Come, sit at the table, buy without money and without price. It's so amazing that God gives a rich assortment of drink. He says that there will be water and wine and milk. Water, we know, quenches and refreshes. Wine, the Scriptures tell us, delight the heart and make it glad. Milk strengthens and sustains. It refreshes in the heat of the day. God invites them, therefore, to these waters where they're not going to just find water. They're going to find wine and milk and water. And He invites them not only to the waters, but also to the table to dine with them. And the reason for this invitation is they are not dining with Him. He wouldn't have to call them to come to Him if they were with Him. Amen? He calls them to Himself because they are not drinking from the source of the living water. Likewise, in the prophet Jeremiah, through the prophet Jeremiah, God also identified this same problem of His people. His people committed a twofold sin, we read in Jeremiah 2.13. This sin was not only of looking away from God, but of necessity looking to other things. You see, you cannot avoid drinking from God and hope to just not drink from some other stream. You will start drinking from another stream. In Jeremiah 2.13, Yahweh says of His people, My people have committed two evils. Really, they're twofold, a twofold evil with a singular root. Two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you see how they're two sides of the same coin? They have turned from the fountain of living waters, so they try to make earth jars of living waters, cisterns, holes in the ground ruled out by or measured out by clay or brick to hold water so that they could come to this broken cistern and try to get water for themselves. And that cannot hold any water, Yahweh says. Therefore, He calls them back to Himself. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to Me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. At this time, the prophet of Israel, Isaiah, is addressing this fact that God's people have gone astray from seeking delight in God Himself, and they've turned aside to other things. Isaiah is saying that natural bread is not satisfying the deepest longings of the human heart. We have this terrible habit at my workplace where someone gets a box of donuts on Friday. And I am very susceptible to this box of donuts. And one of the things that's amazing about a donut is there's very little substance. It's mostly air. And it's able to be consumed immediately. And as soon as it's done, you want another one. This is what Isaiah is saying to the people. You are chasing after things that do not satisfy, that quickly are consumed and leave you empty. Natural bread, donuts, pizza, whatever, it doesn't satisfy. This is not an appeal to the paleo diet. This is, this is, a, 
This is the words of the prophet saying to the people, These, you're working for things. You're, you're investing your soul in things that do not satisfy. Therefore, God calls His people to listen to Him and to eat what is good. Notice this. He calls them to listen to Him and to eat. He says, to delight yourselves in rich food. And we know to delight yourself in food, you have to taste that food. You cannot merely come and look at that food. You must eat it. As Psalm 34 verse 8 says, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a tasting that has to take place and then an evaluation. You cannot know whether God is good unless you first come to Him and taste of Him. He says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my sure, my steadfast, sure love for David. Those who hear God's call to himself must therefore come to him. Hearing God's word alone or reading God's word alone in your Bible times or, or hearing preaching of God's word is not the end goal of Christian preaching and Bible reading. Let me say it again. Your Bible reading itself is not the main goal. You are to encounter God in your Bible reading. The pattern is to listen and eat, incline your ear and come. It is not just receiving an external word without tasting the substance. Those who truly hear God's word cannot stop at the hearing but must continue to apprehend Him, to lay hold of Him, and commune with Him, which is an act of faith that takes place in the soul. For those who do this, God says He will bring them into an everlasting covenant, which was shown in His covenant faithfulness to David. If you were here in the Sunday school hour, you may remember that David was installed as the king over Israel, and that king testified something about Yahweh. Verse 4, Behold, I made him, Yahweh made David, a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. God made a covenant with David in which he promised everlasting faithfulness through David's greater son. And yet, David himself was a perfect pointer to and a perfect embodiment of the reality of a man whose life is consumed with God. Those who truly come to drink of God and eat of God partake of this very same covenant. We know David famously is called a man after God's own heart. And Isaiah says he was a witness to the people. But what did he witness? What did he testify about? He testified through his love for the Lord of the delight that he found in seeking God. Last week, John Gray gave a message on Psalm 27, and in verse 4, David says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Because of the greatness of God's promise through David, he tells through Isaiah to the people of Israel of a time when these Gentiles are going to come to Christ through the same covenant that he gave to David. And all those who come into this covenant, this, the sure and steadfast mercies of God to David, experience the same thing that David 
experienced. Their chief highest desire is to gain, gaze upon the Lord. That right there is the essence and aim of what true conversion is. Turning your eyes from looking at worthless things and looking upon the Lord. Turning your appetite from worthless food to the Lord. And by food, I do not mean the donut and the pizza. I mean from those things which you are trying to fulfill your soul with, instead of going to them, looking towards God alone. In verse 5, Isaiah prophesies, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. If you were here during the Sunday school hour this week, we spent time in Psalm 110, and we examined the difference between the you and the you, and the he and the he, and the Lord and the Lord. And in this exact same verse, we find the same dynamic. Isaiah is telling of a one who is going to call a nation to himself, a nation that he had not previously known. And the reason for this calling of the nation to himself, this new nation to himself, is because he will be glorified. He will be glorified and demonstrated as the true Son of God, the true Messiah, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and whose meditation is upon his law day and night. Isaiah, therefore, is telling of this one who's going to call forth from the Gentiles a great nation to himself because the Holy One has glorified him. And we know when this takes place. In the Gospel of John, Jesus, as he's about to go to the cross, says, Father, I have glorified your name. And now he says, glorify me with the same glory which I had with you before the foundations of the earth. And that glorification took place at one place outside of Jerusalem on a hill, a dirty, rocky, craggly hill, which Christ ascended, carrying a cross, and was crucified in open shame. In the midst of blood pouring down from that cross, He was glorified. He was demonstrated as the true Son of God, the one who is atoning for the sins of His people and gathering in that very moment a people for Himself because God was glorifying Him. Jesus said of His cross, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to Myself. And that's exactly what we remember in the season of Lent moving towards Holy Week. We remember that all of these benefits, the benefit to taste and see that the Lord is good, the benefit to commune with our Maker, all of it is blessing and grace for us, and yet it was purchased by our Lord and Master at a great price of His own life and blood. And therefore, He calls, because of the extreme sacrifice that He has given and the amazing gift of Himself that He has given in the cross, he calls his people to come and to taste of him. Isaiah, therefore, at this point in his prophecy, calls God's people to seek after him, to respond to his invitation to come and eat and drink. In verse 6, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he, the Lord, may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Those who have transgressed God's laws, even from among the people of God, are invited to come back to God, not to be judged, 
but rather to receive mercy. But as they come, they must leave behind their wicked ways and their wicked thoughts. You see, we know from the Christian faith, from the teachings of the Scriptures, that God does not just measure our actions alone, but also our affections. He judges not only what we do externally, but what we meditate upon internally. Our actions and affections, our deeds and our devotions, if you will, what we set our minds upon, must be sanctified by the blood of Christ. Therefore, Isaiah says, let him forsake his ways and let him forsake his evil thoughts. Therefore, as we return to the Lord week by week and day by day, we must understand that the fruit of our lives, the, the, the sins which we may commit externally, are not the only sins which we must repent of. The chief and highest sin in these passages that we must repent of is a failure to see a continual thirst for Christ, a continual need that persists in the Christian life. The wicked here comes to God that God would have compassion on him. Again, this action of coming to God is a movement of the soul towards God in response to God's invitation. Coming to God does not mean traveling to the temple in Jerusalem, but rather coming to seek the Lord is a response to God's word. God's grace has come in the invitation. God has sent His prophet to call His people to Himself. Nevertheless, this coming is a spiritual act. It is only made possible because the Holy Spirit assures the soul of God's extreme and abundant pardon. So reluctant is man to hear God's promise of forgiveness and trust in it in order to obey it that God at this place through Isaiah doubly assures man of his desire to pardon. Why should the man come to God and forsake his wicked ways and forsake his wicked thoughts because God will pardon? For this reason, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What does God mean by this phrase? He means that man continues to dwell upon past grievances. Consider in your own life how deep of an effort it has been to forgive those who have gravely wounded you. In fact, many times when the subject of forgiveness of those who have deeply wounded us comes up, without the minister or friend or, or speaker even mentioning that person's name, we often remember exactly who it is that we have had to forgive the most. Man's thoughts continually dwell upon past grievances, but God here is assuring him that he will completely forgive. Man, likewise, in, his, in the state of his flesh, wishes for forgiveness without any sort of repentance. But God promises to work a transformation in him. Man seeks to enact revenge, but for those who come, God is going to pardon completely with no threat of ever revoking his mercy. Brothers and sisters, if you have come to Jesus Christ and you have trusted in him and you have sought after him like these passages are telling you, trust God, he will not revoke his previously applied mercy. 
He is going to abundantly pardon. His ways are not your ways. How does the world give? It gives in order to receive. It gives in order to hold it over you, to, to perhaps one day remind you that the gift was given. But no, God does not give grace like this. So great is God's mercy compared with man's transgressions that God likens them to an impassable distance between heaven and earth. Truly, heaven and earth do meet, in a sense, at the horizon. And yet, biblically speaking, when God wants to talk about an impassable distance, He says, so far above as the heavens are from the earth. God is saying to these people that not only should they seek after Him, not only will He pardon, but He will pardon completely. And He will be for them if they truly come to taste of Him and to drink of Him, that He will become to them everything they could possibly wish for, everything that they could possibly need. In this account that we heard of John, from John's gospel of the Samaritan woman, Jesus is in this passage fulfilling all of which Isaiah spoke. He begins at this point in John's gospel to call the Gentiles to himself, a people who were strangers to the covenants. Just as in the past when Abraham's servant found a bride, Rebekah, for Isaac at the well, Jesus here is restoring not a bride to himself directly in human terms, but a part of the wonderful bride to himself on a cosmic level. And in fact, so beautiful is what Christ, what Christ is doing is that he knows her history before she opens his mouth. He chose this woman specifically for this time. As we'll read in just a minute, he sent his disciples away to go and get food so that they would return and he would have this time with her. He transgressed, in a sense, two common unwritten rules in Israel in that day, that a man would converse with a woman openly who he was not married to or a relative of, and two, a second thing, that a Jew would talk to a Samaritan, as we hear from the text. Jesus here is not just restoring the cosmic bride, but for this specific woman is restoring a very broken bride. Later on in John 4, we, we learn outside of our reading today that she had been the wife of five others, and the one whom she was with then was not even her husband. Jesus, desiring to address the true thirst of her soul, here asks her for earthly water. In verse 7, it reads, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Does this sound familiar with Isaiah 55? Come to the waters, come and buy, eat. Here, Jesus is asking for a drink. He had sent away the disciples to buy food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John helps us saying, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Essentially, the entire message of what I'm hoping to present to you today is encapsulated in this verse. If she really recognized the gift of God in Christ and all that God is for us in Jesus, then she would have asked for him to give her something much more important than physical water. 
Understanding the nature of true food and true drink, Jesus is encountering her greatest longing, and he puts his finger on her shame and restores her to wholeness. There's a great danger in never wishing to address difficult things in one's past. Jesus puts his finger on her greatest shame in order to touch her, to reveal of himself her greatest longing. Immediately, Jesus here is asking for natural water, but he's doing this in order to reveal himself as living water. If you were with us in the season of Epiphany, we looked at how each miracle, Jesus did something to glorify himself in the miracle, but in and through and around the miracle, he was doing something much greater. He was addressing Simon Peter's great need, or he was addressing the the person's actual brokenness. For example, with the man with the withered hand, he says to him, your sins are forgiven. With the man who is lame in his body, he says, your sins are forgiven. He's doing something internally and manifesting that externally. So he asks her for natural water. He asks her for a drink from the well so that he can reveal himself as the true living water. She here responds to his questions with very natural objections. That is, she shows her ignorance of what he's actually talking about by the questions that she uses to object. She says in verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Here it's uh, hard for us to remember, but in the culture of and time of when, when Jesus would have been ministering, the phrase living water actually has a double meaning in this text. In those days and still to today, Sometimes the phrase living water means a flowing stream, a natural stream of its own course. She thinks that he's got a secret stream around the the hill somewhere. She is interpreting his invitation naturally. In fact, this is confirmed in the Didache. If you want to read, we're going to baptize somebody later today. And in the Didache, the, the teaching of the apostles, they use the phrase, if it's possible, go to a place with living water. They don't mean Jesus Christ. They mean a place with a natural spring, a natural flow of a stream or a river. Here she's saying that if you were going to get this from this well, it's too deep and you have nothing to draw with. And also, where would you get that living water? All we have here is a well. She then goes on to ask something amazingly profound. She says in verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Immediately, this third question that she asks begins to imply that perhaps the Spirit of God is doing something in her. She begins to ask a very profound question, connecting this well with her spiritual heritage of of coming as a daughter of Jacob. Her questions and objections, though from the eyes of the flesh, are extremely profound. First of all, her questions are all true. The water of life cannot be drawn by human means. There is nothing that you have which would be a tool for you to scoop up the water of life. The true source of life is beyond the grasp of mere human invention and human intention. Her final question then, for, therefore, begins to hone in on Jesus' intention. She asks, are you greater than Jacob? And the screaming answer is, yes! 
He is greater than Jacob. He's not only greater than Jacob, but he existed before Jacob existed. Over and over again through the Gospels, Jesus will say something like, someone greater than Abraham is here. Something greater than Solomon's temple is here. And here she asks, are you claiming to be greater than Jacob, having a better water source than this well which he gave to us as our spiritual heritage as the people of God? Jesus says, yes. He not only existed before Jacob, but he wrestled against Jacob and prevailed. When Jacob wrestled with the messenger of God until the breaking of day, Jacob asks a question. He says, tell me your name. And the messenger of God says, why do you ask my name? And then it says that Jacob named that place Peniel, for he had wrestled with God. He had come face to face with God and was not destroyed. This beautiful parallel takes place with Gideon, where Gideon likewise has a messenger of the army of God come to him, and he says, actually, this might be Samson. I'm, I'm not sure, but there is a place in the Scriptures where the same phrase is uttered, what is my name? And the messenger responds, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Jacob is not the source of water for the people of Israel. Jacob, even though his name Israel it, uh, connotes a, a begetting of the life of the people of God, Jacob is not the source of the life of the people of God. Jacob drank from that well, as did his sons and all their livestock, and all of them died. And yet Jesus promises that this water of which she will be invited to drink is not only fulfilling, but it is eternal. Therefore, desiring to show himself, Jesus here is distinguishing between earthly water and eternal water. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What's the difference between a well and a spring? Well, a well continues to have water in it. A well can be poisoned quite easily. A well takes water from the earth, water that comes down from heaven, filters through the earth, and comes to a common ground source. And a well allows that water to be drawn up to the surface. But a spring is quite different. What Jesus is promising is that those who drink of him will not have to dig down into the earth to obtain water, but that that water will spring up and it will come up to the surface. It will bubble forth and become a great source of life. In verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Everyone who drinks from Jacob's well needs to keep drinking. But every single person who drinks from the living water will never be thirsty again. If you truly drink of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, he will become for you your greatest and highest joy, your deepest and most fulfilling experience of anything that exists in this life. The Holy Spirit of God, this well of living water, becomes in those who drink of Christ a spring which causes life to continue to well up, sustaining and refreshing their souls. And yet, 
though Jesus gives the plain meaning of what he's intending to say to this woman, she misses his intention. She does indeed ask, but she asks in an external way. She asks, still thinking that he's talking about water, because she says, give me this water that I don't have to come back to this well. Christ does, in the rest of John's gospel, does indeed lead her to himself, but she does not find him on her own way, but through his great gracious leading of her to himself. Therefore, we must come to God in Jesus Christ to drink of him. The coming that that Isaiah prophesies about, the command to come to the, the source of the living water, to drink of him and to eat of him, that coming is not an external act. It is a spiritual internal act of the soul in which we receive God as our greatest friend. We encounter him and take delight in him as our deepest joy. We treasure him as our highest good. And we love him with all that we are and all that we aspire to be. This is one of the greatest evidences of spiritual reality is, do you wish for everything in your life to be consumed with love for God? That does not mean that you are delivered from chores and human obligations and responsibilities and going to jobs and and cleaning bathrooms and taking out the trash. It doesn't mean that you are delivered from cancer and hardship and that you are never afraid again. But what it does mean is in all of those things, through all of those things, God is constantly with you and your soul by the Holy Spirit is able to commune with him and to drink of him and to delight in him. It is a spiritual reality which must be produced by the Holy Spirit but requires our participation. Isaiah does not write so that the Holy Spirit will perform a transaction in your heart apart from your obeying the command to come. Come to the river. Come to the fountain of life. Coming to drink of Jesus Christ is not merely, therefore, a reception of forgiveness alone. That is the great promise of the gospel at the onset. Truly, reconciliation with God, having your sins removed from you, knowing that you will delight and love God forever and ever, are just the beginning steps into the kingdom of God. Coming to drink of Christ, therefore, is not merely escape from hell and escape from wrath. It includes that. But brothers and sisters, Christianity is much more about the knowledge and love of God than it is merely an external ticket away from judgment. It includes that full assurance of pardon, and yet it goes on to maturity until which God is, in a word, our all in all. He becomes for us our all-consuming joy, our greatest passion, in a word, everything. And at the end of my preparation, I tried to sum up in one word what I hope to communicate God must become for you if you are to obey these verses. He must not just be your drink or your food or your joy. He must be everything to you. And that is such a great and wonderful promise. And yet at the same time, we are faced with the radical impossibility. You and I cannot make God our everything apart from his grace transforming our heart. Therefore, if you hear Christ's call to 
today to come and to drink of him, to commune with him, to eat and to drink with him, to dine with him, then know that in that command is also the grace to transform your life. God will accomplish his work. So come, come to Jesus Christ. Come to this table as we join together. Don't just come in an external way. Come and eat and drink. My charge to you this morning is let us come to drink from the source of life, Christ the living water, that you might never thirst again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the preciousness of your word in which we find the words of life and encounter your Son in truth. We pray, Lord, that you would give to us today hearts and souls that would apprehend you and that would cling to you and that would come to you, not only for forgiveness, but also that you might become everything, that you might enthrall our hearts and delight us and and captivate who we are. Lord, we, we ask that you would perform this work in us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.